Hi all, you're listening to At The Beam, a medical education podcast where we discuss high-yield oncology with a focus in radiation oncology. We are Trudy and Josh, and thank you for listening. All right, well, welcome back everyone to At The Beam. Today, we're gonna be talking about cervical cancer, so we're gonna just jump right into it, and Josh will start asking the questions and I'll answer. All right, Trudy. So um, we'll be talking about cervical cancer today, like you mentioned. So we have about 13,000 new cases in the U.S. annually, and most of these cancers are due to HPV. However, with um, improvements in screening, the incidences have uh, decreased over the recent years. Um, before we jump into the case, let's just discuss risk factors for HPV. So most cervical cancers develop from the high-risk strains of HPV. Notably, this is um, HPV 16 and 18. But there are additional risk factors to consider as well, including immunosuppression, such as having HIV, smoking, and high-risk sexual behavior, meaning multiple partners, history of STDs, and so on. So let's start off this case with a 53-year-old anti-smoking lobbyer who's an active smoker and presents with postcoital bleeding. So what are going to be your first steps? So I would first start off with a detailed history and physical, focusing on her gyne history most interested in when her last pap was and if she's had a history of any abnormal pap smears or persistent high-risk HPV infection. I would also inquire about the risk factors we mentioned above in addition to elucidating more details about the degree of vaginal bleeding. And then on physical exam, I would focus on the abdominal and bimanual pelvic exam, carefully evaluating for any palpable masses, lateral, posterior, inferior extension if there, is, if there are any masses, and then palpable inguinal or supraclavicular lymph nodes. All right, great. Um, briefly, can you go over the ACOG screening guidelines? Sure. So uh, no screening is performed if you're under 21 years old. For women who are 21 to 29, they only need a pap smear every three years. Once you hit 30, co-testing with a pap and HPV test is recommended every five years. Or you can continue doing a routine pap every three or an HPV test alone every five. And then for women who are 65 or older, generally it's okay to stop screening if they've had three negative PAPs in a row or two negative co-tests. All right, very good. So this patient has missed a few HPV screens. Her last PAP was about 10 years ago. She is postmenopausal and noticed postcoital bleeding about two months ago. So on exam, there's a large 5CM cervical mass with right parametrial invasion. There's no palpable lymphadenopathy. What are your next steps? So my suspicion for cervical cancer is very high, so I would get a biopsy followed by a PET-CT, MRI pelvis, CBC, CMP, and a pregnancy test if she is pre- or perimenopausal. I would consider screening for HIV and hepatitis B as well. And then on the CBC, I want to make sure that she's not anemic. And on the CMP, check her renal function in anticipation of cisplatin. Okay, great. So the biopsy confirms a squamous cell carcinoma. On PET-CT and MRI, she has two internal iliac lymph nodes with FTG avidity. There's no extension to the pelvic sidewall or nearby organs. The labs are normal. So what is her clinical stage, and do you mind just going over staging? Sure. Um, staging for cervical cancer is most commonly by the FIGO system that was significantly updated in 2018 and then the TNM staging. So nodal involvement is now included in the FIGO staging as well as the use of advanced cross-sectional imaging such as a PET and MRI to more accurately stage patients clinically. A brief way to look at staging is broadly T1 tumors are confined to the cervix, which can be further subdivided into T1A, B, or C, depending on the size, which are less than two centimeters, two to four centimeters, or great, uh, four or greater, um, respectively. 
T2 extension beyond the cervix is to either the upper vagina, which is T2A, or the parametral tissues, T2B. T3 is more extension, either inferiorly into the lower third of the vagina, T3A, or laterally resulting in invasion into the pelvic sidewall, which can cause hydronephrosis, which would be a T3B tumor. T4 is invasion to adjacent organs, such as the bladder, rectum, um, or distant mets beyond the true pelvis. So N1 mets are um, mets to pelvic lymph nodes, and then N2 are mets to PA lymph nodes. M1 is the presence of distant mets. So for this patient with a five centimeter tumor and parametral extension, she would be a clinical T2BN1, which is also a known as a FIGO stage 3C1. You can broadly think of FIGO staging following the T stage if the patient is clinically no negative. However, if lymph nodes are involved, they are automatically a FIGO stage 3C. Specifically, patients with pelvic nodal involvement are a FIGO stage 3C1, and then with PA nodes, they are a FIGO stage 3C2. Yeah, that's great. Very comprehensive. That's perfect. And uh, what are your treatment recommendations? So for patients stage above FIGO stage 1B2, um, I would recommend definitive chemoradiation with external beam 45 gray and 25 fractions, including the pelvic lymph nodes with a sequential or SIB to gross nodes to 55 to 65 gray based on size, location, brachytherapy contribution, your dose per fraction, and normal tissue tolerances. Um, so this would be then followed by a brachytherapy boost. The brachy boost dose, volume, and technique all depend on how the patient responds to external beam. So if the patient demonstrates good radiographic response and has um, less than or equal to four centimeters of residual tumor remaining after beam, our goal is to achieve an EQD2 of at least 80 gray. If the patient is a non-responder or has greater than four centimeters remaining of tumor, we want to go higher and treat to an EQD2 of at least 85 to 90 gray. Yeah, that's great. So uh, let's discuss the details of the brachytherapy boost later. Um, so Trudy, you're treating the pelvis to 45 gray with an SIB to gross nodes. How would you send this patient and what are your volumes? I would first place fiducial markers at the cervix and send the patient with IV contrast supine with her arms on her chest and obtain two scans, one with a full bladder and one with an empty bladder. This will help us create an ITV accounting for any bladder variability. For contours, I will use the PET and MRI fusion to help delineate the total extent of my GTV. For my primary CTV, I would include the gross cervical tumor, cervix, uterus, ovaries, the proximal vagina with a 2-3 to three centimeter margin below gross tumor, and the parametrial tissue. For my lymph node CTV, I would include the presacral, internal iliac, external iliac, and then common iliac uh, lymph nodes up to the aortic bifurcation. A helpful technique to appropriately cover nodal volumes is to use a 7 millimeter brush and contour around the vessels and then crop out any bone, bowel, or muscle. If there's any distal third vagin uh, vaginal involvement, make sure that you include the bilateral inguinal nodes. And then if there are involved common iliac or periaortic lymph nodes, you can treat the periaortic nodal chain by treating up to the renal vein or just above the highest involved lymph node, whichever is higher. When contouring the PA chain, you want to make sure to be generous on the left side of the IVC. And then next, I would then use the full and empty bladder scans to create an ITV based on different positions of the uterus. And then lastly, I would add a seven millimeter margin to create my final primary and lymph node PTVs. 
Yeah, that is fantastic. <laughs> so the purpose of those uh, fiducial markers is to help with alignment for daily verification imaging. All right, so let's say that the patient is about to start treatment and she asks you about the chemotherapy scheduling and external beam radiation toxicities. How would you counsel her? So she'll receive concurrent cisplatin 40 milligrams per meter squared on a once-weekly basis. In regard to radiation toxicity, she may experience anorexia, diarrhea, urinary bother, and potentially some bloating, cramping, and nausea. In the long term, we look out for rectal bleeding, hematuria, vaginal ulceration, vaginal stenosis, and dryness. During her treatments, I would also be mindful to monitor her renal function, electrolytes, and blood counts while receiving cisplatin. All right, so she finishes her external beam radiation course and asks you whether she can go on a cruise before she starts the brachytherapy boost. Uh, what would you tell her? I would emphasize to her that total treatment time is very important in cervical cancer, and there is evidence that supports possible worse outcomes if patients don't complete both beam and brachytherapy within seven weeks. So it took some convincing. She finally canceled her European boost cruise, <laughs> and she's now ready to start brachytherapy. Can you just please briefly describe your brachytherapy technique, uh, the volumes and prescription? Yeah, so for listeners out there, there are several different ways to administer the brachytherapy boost portion, which can consist of intracavitary, interstitial, or hybrid techniques. The optimum technique is often determined by where we want to get dosed to and the volume of residual disease. And this is, this is defined by the Jack Estro guidelines. So there are two CTV volumes to consider. First is the high-risk CTV, which includes one, any residual gross tumor following beam, two, the entire cervix, and then three, gray zone areas on T2-weighted MRI. The second CTV is the intermediate-risk CTV, which you can think of as the volume that harbors significant microscopic disease, usually corresponding to the initial area of gross disease prior to the start of treatment for which disease has regressed. While the goal EQD2 to the high-risk CTV we mentioned before is greater than 80 gray if there's less than 4 centimeters of residual tumor or 85 to 90 gray if there's greater than 4 centimeters of residual tumor, the goal EQD2 for the intermediate risk CTV is about 60 gray. That's excellent. So in broad strokes, any disease that remains after 45 gray of external beam radiation can be viewed as persistent and thus needing um, extra dose with a brachytherapy boost to eliminate. Therefore, we want to achieve the EQD2 of over 80 gray to these areas. Um, the intermediate risk CTV is basically where the tumor used to reside, but has uh, receded. However, there um, may still be some harbored microscopic disease, so we need to boost these areas as well to a goal EQD2 of about 60 gray. So, uh, Trudy, what are the dose constraints that you're looking for? So considering the external beam and brachy boost portions together, the goal is to maintain a D2CC less than 90 for the bladder and D2CC less than 75 gray for the rectum and sigmoid. With better image guidance and growing use of MRI to guide treatment planning now, these constraints can be ideally lower to 80 gray for the bladder, 65 for the rectum, and 70 gray for the sigmoid in order to reduce treatment-related morbidity. The small bowel should also be limited to 70 gray. The rectovaginal point should ideally be kept to less than 65 gray to reduce significant risk of vaginal stenosis. And there are EQD2 calculators that are available online to help keep track of the cumulative total dose to OARs that you um, take into account from the beam and brachytherapy portions of treatment. Okay, so uh, she completes her radiation therapy 
within these seven weeks and asks uh, what her follow-up schedule is like. She wants to start planning for a cruise. So uh, what would you tell her? So she needs to follow up every three to six months for the first two years with a history and fiscal. And then that can be lengthened to every six to, uh, six to 12 months uh, in year three to five. It's very important that after three months after radiation, she gets a restaging PET CT to assess response. And I would um, at that point routinely screen for any sexual health concerns and follow up and counsel her on the routine use of vaginal dilators as well as vaginal and vulvar moisturizers to prevent the development and progression of vaginal stenosis and other symptoms from treatment-related changes in tissue quality. I'd also screen for menopause symptoms and recommend hormone replacement therapy if it's appropriate, especially in younger women. All right. So let's say that at her three-month PET scan, unfortunately, it shows a distant metastatic disease to the lung. What would your recommendation be at this point? So this patient would require systemic treatment now, and it would most likely be carbopaclitaxel plus bevacizumab plus or minus Pembro if uh, the tumor is PDL one positive. All right, that was uh, that was fantastic, Trudy. Thank you so much. Uh, so this concludes our episode on cervical cancer. We wanted to say a big thank you for um, Dr. Christine Chin at Columbia University uh, for helping us review uh, today's case. Um, you can view our show notes at our website at thebeam.com. And be well and remember to trust, but always verify.